You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your host, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Moore. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 136. My name is Nathan Gilmore, and I'm an assistant professor, although not for long, at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined on the line this fine afternoon by Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College. Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. We're coming up on the end of finals week. By the time this uh, goes live, I will have turned in all my grades and will be done for the spring. Yeah, I'm 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 going to enjoy teaching the May master class that I've volunteered to teach, but there's moments when I think, why did I do that? And then you uh, remember because they pay you extra for it. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it go down smooth. It does indeed. Also on the line is Dr. David Grubbs, a professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas. David, how are you today? Pretty much splendid, though two weeks from commencement. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a week and a day out, so I'm right in, the, right in between. Well, anyway, we've got a little bit of a listener email this fine day. I'm going to go ahead and start out reading one from Isabel Eyre. Gentlemen, I haven't read Postman. A few months ago, I checked out the audiobook of Amusing Ourselves to Death. Didn't get around to it. Enjoy your <laughs> discussion regardless. My undergraduate thesis was in the pres- presidential image politics and the Reagan-Carter debates partly inspired the idea. So I found that selection of your that section of your discussion very interesting. The thesis of the book as laid out by you both reminded me of Jacques Ellul's propaganda. Ellul believed that in- educated intelligentsia were more susceptible to mass media propaganda than the quote unquote illiterate for a variety of reasons I couldn't even begin to summarize well. The entertainment question in the value of TV also sounded very Ellulian. He also wrote a book about technology. I wonder if he and Postman were at all in intellectual conversation. It seems likely. As for the study that Nathan read that claimed that TV campaign ads don't change anybody's mind and aren't intended to, bingo. Used to work for a federal congressman in my young, air quotes, idealistic days. And the reason why the vast majority of television ads are negative is that they are designed to incense the people who were at that point too lazy to vote for the other guy into action. Candidates, ah. who, candidates who have enough money hire experts to focus test their TV spots. I'm sure this is not news or surprising to you, but just putting it out there as on-the-ground evidence. Thanks for all your great podcasts coming up on my year anniversary of listening. 
last summer David suggested on the Facebook page that you do a podcast recommendation show. Whatever became of that idea, at the very least, a blog post to that end would be great. Thanks from Isabel. So, I mean, uh, first of all, the uh, the bit about the you know campaign ads, you know, that's something that I've heard largely through podcasts that I listen to. It's not something that I read, uh, or certainly I haven't experienced a federal campaign. That was just something I'd picked up along the way. I'm trying to imagine you working on a federal campaign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I my my hunch it would be a short tenure. <laughs> Or or it would feel a lot like magical realism. Hey. Hey, hey. <laughs> All right, Michael, you want to do the email from Brandon? Yeah, he says that his bi-monthly book club wants to tackle some of Aquinas's summa for our next book. We're currently reading Bonaventure and are baffled. Can you recommend a lay-level <laughs> edition of the summa? doesn't have to be the whole thing. Isn't it many volumes anyway? Need recommendations. Love your show. Nathan, I'm going to be disappointed if you don't talk about your e-reader. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's actually why uh, I bought an e-reader fairly early on in their existence is because there was a free edition of uh, the Summa of Thomas Aquinas uh, made available by the Benedictine Order of America. Uh, no, not the Benedictine, dadgummit. The Dominican Order of America. My apologies. That, may, that makes more sense. <laughs> My apologies to the Dominican brothers out there, but and the uh, and the Benedictines for that matter. Yeah, Nathan's apologizing to all his brothers. Uh, but uh, I will say that I, uh, you know, you can find free editions uh, a ton of places on the internet. Uh, Amazon in their Kindle store has free editions of it. Uh, one version that I read that was a nice. Uh, introduction to Thomas's theology, although it's not the Summa itself, is the work that he started late in life but never finished called the Compendium Theologica. Uh, it gets published uh, under the title Thomas's Shorter Summa, which is a little bit misleading, but that's all right. Uh, David, how about you? I mean, what would you recommend as far as Summa guides? Because they can get the text for free. It's a matter of, you know, finding the good bits to read together, really. Reading the Summa is really a lot like reading Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, if if you're interested in kind of un, undirected browsing, if you're one who will kind of leaf through an encyclopedia out of boredom, you know, knock yourself out. But typically, I think, I, I don't know, for, for me anyway, reading the Summa is most fruitful when you're coming with particular questions about particular topics. Right. Um, but also the shorter summa, um, which, you know, uh, the, the, the edition that I have just calls it the shorter summa. Um, that, that's what I have on my shelf. I don't have the whole daggum thing on my shelf cause I don't have that much shelf space. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if you're, if you're interested in kind of reading, reading a longer work to give you a sense of how, um, of how Thomas works, um, if that's what you're interested in, the shorter summa, I'd re- I'd the accept the proper title. Um, I'd recommend that. But if you're wanting to dip into the summa proper, um, maybe come with an agenda. Right, um, and then uh, Peter, new, new, Peter, oh, go ahead. Peter Kreeft has a book called A Summa of the Summa, which I think <laughs> is a translation of 
it, it says it's 400 or 500 and something pages. So it's probably about a fifth or a sixth of the, the total length of the book. And I'm sure it is the passages that Kreeft finds most interesting or important. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, if you do have a, a sort of syllabus of questions handy, a website like uh, newadvent.org uh, has a searchable text of the Summa that you can use, you know, pretty easily. It's it's one that I often use for my own research. Uh, but remember that the Summa is a series of textbooks for seminary students. Uh, so, I mean, it, you know, trying to read the Summa from end to end, like David said, is like pulling a reference book off of the shelf in your library and reading it instead of going to the index and finding the bits that you happen to be interested in at the moment. Right. CCEL has, uh, I think, has, has one as well. Oh, for, yeah, good point. For linking through. Um, I will say that one of the things that helped me most, and I think it might be available more broadly now, um, maybe going on 10 years ago now, uh, Fred Sanders, I don't know Fred Sanders fan, uh, gave a context lecture in the Tory Honors program about uh, reading reading the Summa as an evangelical Protestant and talks about, you know, taking the Summa on a beach trip and, like, you know, sitting on the beach reading Thomas. And I thought that sounded wonderful. But anyway, David's close uh, personal I, friend, Fred Sanders. I, I, I don't claim that, but he did like one of my Facebook statuses once. Um, all that to say this. A lot of the Tory context lectures are now available through Open Biola podcast. So uh, I, I, I haven't checked to see if the Sanders Thomas Aquinas Summa lecture is there, but I know that other things like that are, are are kind of out there as kind of orientations to it. That might also be helpful. Michael, you want to read the email from Paul? Sure. He says that he enjoyed the Blake podcast. One thing regarding your difficulties with the final line of the chimney sweeper from Songs of Innocence, I think you need to ask the question, who is the speaker of the poem? If the speaker of the poem is Blake, an assertion I would vehemently argue against, then I understand why you are struggling with the line. But if the speaker of the poem is the voice of innocence, then I think you can see how such a line makes sense within the poem. If the voice is the voice of innocence, then we are certainly invited to hear that voice while at the same time listening with the ears of experience, understanding that the speaker's very innocence allows him to be exploited by those who would exploit him. Or her, but girls were not usually chimney sweepers. I tell my students this when I teach Blake in the Brit Lit 2 survey. Oftentimes our initial encounter with a writer is negative, but after deeper study we begin to see the value or even enjoy such a writer. I, like you, was initially turned off by Blake's prophetic poems and his very private mythology. Then I took a term-long seminar in William Blake at University of Georgia, where I earned my MA and PhD with with Rodney Bain. By the end of it, I hated Blake more than I did at the start. <laughs> Paul Schleifer, and he has, he has helpfully uh, provided an I, uh, IPA pronunciation guide for his name, although it did, yes, take us five to ten minutes to, <laughs> to, to teach ourselves enough IPA to answer it. So, listeners, if you're going to uh, send us a pronunciation guide, Send it like you would to a very dumb person. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I had a very similar experience with Edgar Allan Poe. I didn't like Poe, so I took a semester's um, seminar with him, with uh, Doug Anderson at UGA. And, yeah, I came out really hating Poe to the point where I think I, <laughs> I think I hate him more than most Americanists. Uh, right, right. <laughs> to the point where listeners have written in and said, why do you hate Poe so much? 
Did we do yeah, a Poe episode, or am I making that up? We did a Poe episode, and you were so surly throughout that Charles Hackney <laughs> actually wrote in protest. Um, now, works, I thought, now he works I thought for he us. Would never speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, maybe they'll do their own Poe episode, but I, I, he, uh, yeah, uh, we, we, he, he, he likes his Poe. I like my Poe too. But you, you were, you were just a meanie pants that episode. I think someone must. <laughs> Eating your milk or something. Um, Paul's Paul's explication of the chimney sweeper helps a bit, but I still I still think it it leaves the uh, the uh, what is it? authenticity is not a good word the viability of the vision of heaven pretty open. Mm. It, it it leaves me with the same problems I, I had, which is I don't know how to read the vision itself in the context of that last line. Even if mm. the last line is spoken by the spirit of innocence and we're supposed to look at it and say, yeah, your innocence allows you to be exploited, does that mean we have to throw out the vision? Mm. Right, right. Anyway, thank you for writing in, Paul. And thank yes, you for absolutely. telling us finally absolutely. how to pronounce Schleifer so that we don't, <laughs> we don't continue to make idiots of ourselves. Right, or at least on that word we won't. Yeah. <laughs> Well, anyway, uh, not long ago, listeners, and I, I haven't done the algebra to see how many days from release date it'll happen, but many of you will listen on different days, so that doesn't matter much. Uh, the really, I mean, profoundly well-known and profoundly uh, influential short story and novel writer Gabriel Garcia Marquez died, uh, and so we decided here towards the end of the semester when Obviously, as you could tell by that long pause I just executed, our brains aren't really working on full gear. Uh, we would do a podcast where we took on a couple of his really very brief stories. I had forgotten just how brief these stories are. Uh, in honor of Marquez and also just to have a little bit of fun reading some fun little stories, I think. I, I, I might be pathological finding them as funny as I do, but we'll find that out here directly. Uh, normally, we start out with Grubbs giving us historical context. Uh, but Michael, since Marquez is decidedly a 20th century figure, I'm going to change that up. To what extent and in what ways was the world ready for a writer like Marquez? And to what extent and in what ways did he shake up the literary scene in his own historical moment? I want to say at the outset that I am no more an expert on Latin American literature than either you or David. Okay. <laughs> uh, maybe a little more than David. Because Latin America didn't exist uh, as a uh, as any kind of cultural entity when when the stuff he reads was being written, but I am I am not I I, I am not as knowledgeable about Latin American literature as perhaps I should be. I will say Latin American literature goes back maybe a little further. Modern Latin American literature goes back a little further than we might think. They actually had a modernist movement called Modernismo. At the end of the uh, at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, and uh, and of course in the 30s and 40s you have the Argentinian writer Jorge Luis Borges who is just this overwhelming presence in um, in Latin American literature and he's he's really kind of an indescribable writer he's in incredibly philosophical and he writes these short stories that double as philosophical treaties treaties treatises treatises and 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 they're they're really wonderful um so his shadow hangs long over Latin American literature and so does Gabriel Garcia Marquez who comes along a generation after Borges and he's part of what's known as the boom 
um, which happens after World War II, and it happens for the same reason there's a bit of a boom in uh, United States literature. I was going to say American, but that word is loaded when we're talking about Latin American literature. <laughs> um, th- th- there's a boom for the same reason there's a boom in the United States, which is that after World War II, Latin America is pretty well off financially, and that, that allows them to invest a little more money and a little more time in the arts. And so you get this incredible flowering of Latin American literature in the in the 40s and 50s. And Marquez is very much the biggest figure in that, not just in his native Colombia, but all over Latin America. And his style becomes a shadow the way Borges' style was a shadow. It's something that every Latin American writer for several generations has to get out from under. And I think the best way to think about it, if you're an Americanist like me, is to think of him as the Latin American Faulkner. Not just mm. because he loves Faulkner, which he does, did, and not just not, not in the sense that his work feels all that Faulknerian, because I'm not sure it really does, but in the sense that he is a dominant pre- uh, presence in Latin American letters, just like Faulkner is a dominant presence in Southern American uh, mm. letters. So Flannery O'Connor is always complaining in her letters about how you can't, as, as a writer from the South, you have to escape Faulkner. I think a lot <laughs> of Latin American writers felt the same way about Gabriel Garcia Marquez for the last 50 years or so, just because, you know, if you ask the average non-Latino to name a Latin American author, they're going to say Marquez or Garcia Marquez. We should go ahead and say that now. Marquez is not his last name. Garcia Marquez is his last name. It's, it's, All that, right. it's that Spanish, um, it's that Spanish naming convention. That's, that's sometimes difficult for gringos like you and me. I stand corrected. <laughs> so, so if you can't find him in your bookstore, it's because they've probably filed him where he belongs, which is under Garcia Marquez. Marquez. Right. So, so anyway, he, he becomes just this, this huge presence. He's a, he's a cultural statement statesman. I mean, he, he's so popular in Latin America. They don't even call him Garcia Marquez. They call him Gabo. All over, mm-hmm. all over Latin America. So he's, he's huge. And at the same time he's huge, he's, I, I imagine he's very difficult for other writers from that area to escape. Because the truth is, not all of them are trying to do what uh, Garcia Marquez does, just like not every Southern writer is trying to do what Faulkner does. Mm-hmm. And so right. we'll talk about that a little later. At, at the risk of giving Harold Bloom any kind of platform, I mean, would you compare – <laughs> Gabo's literary presence to what uh, Bloom imagines as Milton's uh, literary presence during the Romantic era. I, I, yes, I, I think that is probably an, an accurate way of thinking. Although I can't speak to Milton and the Romantics as, as much more than I can speak to modern Latin American literature. Right. Well, that's just sort of the central thesis of uh, the anxiety of influence is that you know Milton just sort of remains this inescapable, well, father figure. I mean, he's a Freudian critic, so we can say father figure to the English romantics. So that's what I thought of when you were sort of narrating that series of relationships. And it was very interesting. After after Garcia Marquez died, I listened to a radio broadcast out of, um, oh, I forget what station it is. It's in Boston. It's Tom Ashbrook's show. It's a wonderful program. But he had, he had several major Latin American writers on to talk about Gabba's I feel so weird calling him that, but I'm going to anyway, Um, (laughs) talking about his legacy. And and it was clear from the way they talked about him that on the one hand, they really, really loved him. And and for a lot of them, he was 
they're Shakespeare, you know, he's the reason they started writing. And at the same time, you could, you could sense this resentment in their voices because so much of what non Latin Americans think about Latin American literature comes from readings of Garcia Marquez. And it must be very hard if you're not Garcia Marquez and kind mm-hmm. of hard if you are. Sure. <laughs> well, it's kind of, I mean, I, I, I would imagine that, that there are a number of medievalists who feel the same way about Chaucer. Mm-hmm. You know, because for for most people, Chaucer's only the only thing they know about the Middle Ages, yeah. or Shakespeare, right? For for the Renaissance, or I mean, whoever. There, there's m- most yeah most um most literary eras are are dominated by one or two major figures. Eliot for the for American modernism and British modernism. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about what it's mm-hmm. like to study 19th century French literature and not particularly like Flaubert. Because, <laughs> because, how many, how many nineteenth-century French authors can, or post eighteen fifty, French authors can you name? Oh, never mind. I was going to say Hugo. Oh, that's why I changed it because I knew you were going Hugo. But Hugo's a generation before Flaubert. Uh, oh, I know, I know. I, I thought I just had a trap ready for you, and you, you slipped what? it before I could throw the throw the switch. But this isn't an episode on French literature. We're just making comparisons, right? It isn't. So let's go back to Garcia Marquez, shall we? <laughs> uh, David, I want to turn to one of the stories of his that I've actually taught, and I've, I've really enjoyed it, uh, namely A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings. Uh, the story wastes very little time getting weird, uh, and <laughs> really right out of the gate, the story is a contest of interpretations. Uh, what do some of the parties in the story want to do about and with and around the winged man and what's going on literarily when they contend to define him. Ooh, uh, for listeners who are not familiar with this story, both of these stories, really, um, I implore you pause now, go read it because every word that comes out of my mouth is going to sound like I've been tripping. And by the way, there are links to both of these stories on the Christian Humanist Facebook page. Yes, yes. You you will think I'm tripping, but go read the story and then come back and you'll realize, no, actually, Grubbs did keep the lifestyle covenant he signed. He just read Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Right. That's actually against our lifestyle covenant. Yeah. Reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez. <laughs> awesome. So, yeah, The Very Old Man with Enormous Wings is about, um, well, this this guy, Paleo, who discovers in his yard after a giant, uh, after, you know, several days of storming, a very old man with enormous wings. That's not even a metaphor. It's a really old guy with giant wings. And they're uh, immediately they're trying to figure out uh what what on earth this this person this thing this portent is um initially the reaction is fear Paleo is frightened by the nightmare um they come uh he and he fetches his wife they come and look with mute stupor but then uh i i love this they soon overcame their surprise and in the end found him familiar so almost almost immediately this amazingly weird thing um is made ordinary and they still have to figure out what to do with it um 
the the contest over interpretations that that you're talking about, Nathan, uh, seems largely to be something that the neighbors do. Um, Paleo and his wife uh, don't seem to spend that much time speculating about it. They ask a neighbor woman who declares uh, declares him to be an angel. Um, though for a while they think he might also be a sailor because he sounds kind of sailory when he talks and they don't understand his language. So maybe he was in a shipwreck, but what about the wings? Um, <laughs> what the about priest the wings? Dis- yeah, what about the wings? The The priest dismisses uh, Father Gonzaga, who was... Uh, oh, what was he was a woodcutter before he was a priest. Um, <laughs> dismisses the angelic thesis because uh, angel doesn't speak Latin, which is God's language. So, so of course, QED. <laughs> and you and uh, in in the end, Paleo and his wife uh, start charging admission from the neighbors to come see um, the the weird, bewinged old man. Um, who they can't ever quite figure out what it is, whether he's a holy figure. Some people seem to be making pilgrimage to him, hoping for miracles, but even the miracles don't seem to go quite right. Like the blind man who grows teeth. (laughs) Um, the guy who almost wins the lottery. (laughs) Yes. The guy who almost wins the lottery. Um, other people see a, just, uh, he's, he's a, he's like a carnival freak. Um, they poke him, they throw things at him. Uh, it's it's really sad. Um, I, it is, and it's also just irresistibly funny. Which just, which is itself kind of Faulknerian, right? I mean, if we're if we're making comparisons, right? It's it's bizarre. <laughs> it's it's bizarre in its funniness. Um, ultimately, I think that when, when you talk about it being a problem of interpretation. Ultimately, another carnival, a carnival arrives in town and another freak is presented, which is a giant spider with a woman's head. (laughs) Who once was an ordinary The task of summarizing Garcia Marquez. (laughs) Yes, this tarantula uh, had once been been an ordinary girl, but she had disobeyed her parents. And so, in a moment of judgment, had been transformed into a spider, and now she is displayed for uh, you know the, the the crowds to see. And they throw meatballs at her, and she eats them. <laughs> um, now, for one thing, we've got a more interesting you know another freak is on the scene, and so they're coming to watch the you know coming to watch the the new freak show. Though I think too, I w- I wonder whether or not the attraction in uh the attraction in spider woman is that they know what kind of story she is yep. you know th- they can never yeah they can never settle on what it is that that the very old man with enormous wings means he's not quite angelic he's not an ordinary human he's they can't figure out what he means there's nothing to latch on to spider woman very easy moral story. Don't disobey your parents, lest you become a goat-sized spider <laughs> and have meatballs thrown at you. And we none of us want that. No, no, <laughs> none of us want that. Um, so, uh, you guys know I'm leaving a lot of stuff out, but I've already convinced a lot of people who didn't follow my advice that I'm that I've snapped and gone insane. So, <laughs> so by all means, dive in here and 
at least convince them that we've gone crazy together. Well, what I really didn't notice as much the last time I taught it is, I mean, just how much uh, this is a story about a weird occurrence and then how every other character in the story rushes in to monopolize the story that we're going to tell about the old man. Yes. Uh, And, you know, I I don't know why I missed that, you know, however many years ago it was that I taught this last. But, uh, you know, it's definitely one of those stories that, you know, uh, one of the complaints that I I can't remember if I've complained much about about this on the podcast. But uh, certainly when I tell people why I went into medieval and Renaissance literature rather than modern literature, uh, it's because of this sort of thing, because, I mean, it's a story about telling stories. It's a story about interpreting stories. I mean, it is so self-referential. That said, now that I've been away from it for several years, it's a hilarious story precisely for that reason. Mm-hmm. Michael, I mean, uh, well, actually, I mean, let, let's let's go on with our conversation about it. Uh, immediately, to me at least, a very old man seems to invite comparisons to Kafka's A Hunger Artist. Uh, mm. So, Michael, say a few words as you see fit about the notion that strangers become spectacles and go where you will from there ethically. I actually had not thought of it in terms of the hunger artist, or a hunger artist until you said that. And uh, I had to go back and read the Kafka story, which, as you know, has some, has some important things in common. We, we both have this kind of suffering figure at the center who is put on display and then abandoned when more intriguing novelties come along. Mm-hmm. But I think mm. that the the implication or the uh, the parallels kind of end there. Um, okay. At least as far as the character at the center goes, the 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 crowd. If you want to examine the crowd, they may be the same on either end. They're they're kind of small minded and silly, and they want easy answers, and they're happy to make money off of anything they're able to make money off of, and so so on and so forth. But the character in the cage is very different. Um, mm. we know very little about the desires or motivations or interests or even the personality of the very old man with enormous wings. Um, we know that he's standoffish as you probably would be too, if you washed up on a beach and then they put you in a cage to be displayed. Somebody came by <laughs> yelling at you in Latin, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. the hunger artist really is the protagonist of the, the Kafka story. And he, um, he, I think, is presented not just sympathetically, but almost messianically, almost heroically, mm-hmm. as as a person who fasts as a means not of religious expression, not of poet, uh, po- poetry, not of piety or devotion. Poetry was a combination of those two words, um, <laughs> but out of a very modernist desire to achieve something artistically meaningful. And so, so the central conflict in a hunger artist is about the hunger artist wants to fast for more than 40 days, but his handlers won't let him do so. Not because they're worried that he'll starve to death. Why would anybody worry about that? But because the people get bored after 40 days. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you, you have at the center of that story, a misunderstood artist to the degree, the angel is misunderstood. He's misunderstood even by us because we have no way into understanding him. We can understand Mm -hmm. the hunger artist because, well, Kafka tells us all sorts of things about what he wants. And while the story is still weird, 
it's not impenetrable, or at least the, the central character's consciousness is not impenetrable the same way it is in A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's an interesting comparison, but it ends up being a comparison that tells you more about the ways or about rather the sorts of things that Kafka and, and Garcia Marquez are attempting to do and how those two things are different. Um, as for why Garcia Marquez leaves the central character's consciousness so opaque, hell, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it makes the story funnier, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Kafka is funny, but he's not as funny. He's not uh, a hunger artist. Is not as funny as this story, if only because you have to care about the about what the artist wants in a way that mm-hmm. it's not possible for you to care about what the angel wants. You're you're able to laugh at the silliness of the crowds around him in a way that I, I, I'm not sure I can in a hunger artist. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if the story is, as you say, about interpretation, I think it's significant that Garcia Marquez leaves out the the interpretation of this entity's life that this entity might have of, of his own. That's a very poor sentence. It leaves out the 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 <laughs> man's own interpretation of his own life, and it gives you all these other means of interpretation. Right, right. Or, I mean, the the... Man with wings doesn't take a stand on his own most being if we want to go Heideggerian. Or at least he's not interested in doing it for you, right? He's not performing. Oh, point in any taken. Way. Point taken. Yeah. If the, if the story is a sort of performance, we're the crowd, right? Uh huh. So it makes sense. I guess it makes sense that the, the man wouldn't tell us anything. Right. We're as, I, I... we're as stupid as that guy who almost won the lottery. <laughs> I, I guess the parallel that, that struck me, Michael, is the fact that in both of these cases, you've got a figure who, in a different kind of narrative, uh, would be a figure of religious devotion unqualifiedly. Yeah. Whether it be the angelic figure or whether it be the fasting saint, uh, in a different mode of narrative, uh, either one of these could be part of a a legendary hagiographic, you know, uh, very, very serious story. Uh, but, you know, in the, in the 20th century, you know, those figures, uh, in, in the hands of two very skillful storytellers, I should note, uh, get imported into a sort of consumeristic economy, and therefore they become incapable of being those objects of, um, well, I mean, those, uh, those, those objects of dulia, to use the, the theological term for the veneration of something other than God, Mm-hmm. And well, I mean, I mean, both Kafka and Garcia Marquez have a religious flavor to their storytelling. Um, Kafka, in particular, is often treated as this kind of religious parabolist. Mm-hmm. Garcia Marquez, perhaps mm-hmm. less so, but the very fact that the supernatural happens with such mundanity in so many of his fictions, you know, su- suggests that there's some sort of metaphysical world behind the world or actually combined with the world we live in. Garcia Marquez himself was not religious. His famous quote is, I don't believe in God, but I'm afraid of him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, goodness. that That's just short of I could rightly be taken for an atheist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, David, would you add anything else about a uh, uh, very old man with enormous wings before we scuttle along to our next Subject matter? No, just uh, well, just to kind of add add the fact that um, saints 
uh, not not only you know saints the the the, the proper re- recipients of veneration um, also point us in particular directions. Um, right. They are sa- they are saints because they are lessons in some mm-hmm. sense, and in that sense are more are actually more like the Spider Woman. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, who who is full of so much human truth and with such a fearful lesson. Um, whereas the very old man seems to have nothing whatsoever to do. His, his story would mean nothing to us. Not only do we not know it, it doesn't seem to have any meaning for us. And so, yeah, yeah, that's, it's, 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 it's interesting to, to kind of, to kind of put it that way that, you know, what if, what if there is a kind of supernatural that, needs to be acknowledged because precisely because it has nothing to do with us. Mm-hmm. It's kind of uh, Epicurean. Maybe. Right. Well, that's how Epicurus, well, maybe he didn't even think the gods needed to be acknowledged, but they were the, the very, their very majesty was that they wouldn't have anything to do with us. Right. Although oh, generally they don't okay. get lice, do they? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's been a while since I've read Epicurus, but <laughs> I think it's interesting. Uh, He's called an angel throughout the story, right? And, and your natural assumption is he's an angel. But the title of the story doesn't call him one. It calls him a very old man with enormous wings, which is a markedly non-supernatural way of talking about him. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so we all just assume he's an angel, but who knows, right? He doesn't. He does. He offers no explanation of himself. Well, right. And and he's aggressively corporeal. Right. You know, I mean, he's be, he's bewinged, but that's about the only connection to angelicness that seems to even be implied. Right. He's aggressively embodied. Yeah, he's bald. He's toothless. He has parasites. He. You, you can know. pull his feathers. <laughs> and people do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, David, I, w- I want to move over to our second story. And again, uh, listeners, I mean, this is a very brief story. It's a fun little story. You can read it in half an hour uh, if you don't pause too often to check Facebook. Uh, so <laughs> I, I I strongly suggest you go ahead and hit that pause button. And unless you are driving, uh, go ahead and read this one, too. You can find that link on the Christian Humanist uh, Facebook page. But, David... The way I read it, and again, I, I don't know why I'm so hung up on interpretation today, but it seems like something very similar happens in the handsomest drowned man in the world uh, <laughs> as a Esteban becomes the interpretive node, inviting all sorts of stories that attach to the dead man as barnacles attached to his body when he was out in the sea. In what ways is this a story of hermeneutics, and what does a reader like me, obsessed with hermeneutics, miss if hermeneutics becomes too dominating a focus. <laughs> oh, <sighs> once again, um, the handsomest drowned man in the world. Um, a very, very large, apparently drowned man washes up in this nameless village. And in the course of trying to figure out what on earth to do with his body, um, Apparently, the entire village converts into some kind of near cultic veneration of him, and the co- the the community is transformed by their interactions with the handsomest drowned man in the world. There's your summary. Um, 
hermeneutics. Well, it, he's he. It's it's uh, again aggressive corporeality, like like the very old bewinged man. Um, here's a here's a body that clearly should have a story, right? Um, but doesn't, and so and so they begin uh, they begin inventing them. Uh, he has a handsome face, and therefore, you know that 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 must mean something about his character. He assumes the status of a kind of virtuous paragon in their minds. Um, because he has no clothes, the women gather around and start trying to sew clothes for him. Now that is the point at which he is named Esteban um, by one of the oldest women, uh, and apparently there's a initially some disagreement about the name, but Esteban sticks. Someone else wanted him to be named Lautaro, apparently, which, okay. <laughs> Esteban is catchier. Um, the men, the men come home and they think this is weird, but then they see his face and they realize, oh, he is amazing. Um, but then they, uh, they begin inventing these stories about what his life would be like because, oh, I didn't mention this. This man is huge. Apparently he's a giant, this giant body, which initially they mistake for like a boat or a whale. <laughs> it's a, it's a dude. And so they're imagining how awkward it must have been for Esteban to like bump his head on other people's rafters and so forth. And he must have been very polite as he did so. Uh, the... If you talk about hermeneutics, if you want to talk about hermeneutics in connection to this story, Nathan, um, you have plenty of material because it's all about this attempt to recreate the story of a body that's a complete cipher. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's kind of like, well, it's kind of like those forensics shows where they find, you know, just a body out in the middle of nowhere or a skeleton and then they kind of recreate it and they try to they try to guess things about it. It's, it, it actually reads kind of like that to me sometimes, mm -hmm. but, but ultimately, uh, Esteban comes to mean not just a guy that once lived, but something even more than that. He, he almost seems to become an ideal to where, you know, he ends up being an inspiration for generations to come and he even claims the village in some sense. Mm -hmm. At at first, they're trying to figure out where the body came, comes from, and none of the neighboring villages would claim him, so they said, praise the Lord, he's ours. <laughs> and by the end of it, um, Esteban is not theirs, they are Esteban's. It's Esteban's village. You know, so he, he's, he's become the symbol of, of all of them, and they are going to change to accommodate his his largeness and his apparent virtue, all of which they have read into this very large, very handsome drowned man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that, that, this one, I mean, gets so much more mystical than the very old man. I mm -hmm. mean, I'm, I'm just going to read the sentence that, I mean, always haunts me when I read this story. Uh, at the final moment, it pained them to return him to the waters as an orphan, and they chose a father and mother from among the best people and aunts and uncles and cousins, so that through him all the inhabitants of the village became kinsmen, 
Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh dear heavens, how messianic! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, and and if if you if you get hung up in the herme- hermeneutics, I think well, I think you've just pointed out the thing that I would say that you might miss, which is how weirdly how weirdly similar this is to New Testament notions of us uh, of Christians having formed a community by being in Christ. Yeah, yeah. You know, they are in Esteban, and therefore they should live in a certain way and be in a certain way, and now they are all family together because because of Esteban. Right, and, and, they, and they are in a very straightforward sense a city on a hill because of him. Yes, other people will look to them and say, oh, look, there is Esteban's village. Yeah, the the religious stuff, I think, is there. But even that's hermeneutical stuff, too, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I... <laughs> My... Michael, what are we missing? I'm sorry. I was just thinking about them mocking Christianity. <laughs> um, if you uh, if if this story were set in a city instead of in a rural village, I would say, well, their problem is they're cut off from the ancient traditions. They have nothing to worship, so they have to construct something to worship. Mm-hmm. Right, and so, and so because modern life, blah blah blah, sucks all the, uh, you know, dis, dis, you know, you've all heard me go on this rant. Uh, it, it disenchants, it disenchants the world. We have to re-enchant it by any means necessary. Right. It's a scene in the uh, Jodie Foster movie version of Contact where church choirs are singing hymns to the aliens. Right, but the fact that this is set in what appears to be a pre-modern village i mean it's it's contemporary story but it's a it's a it's not in the it's not in the developed world the the village mm-hmm. is the village is old fashioned presumably just as traditional as anything you could possibly hope for and yet they still have to construct this thing to worship makes it a much less easy statement if it's a statement mm-hmm. at all, and it's not just a series of weird images, which is kind of the uh, feeling I always get from Garcia Marquez. Mm-hmm. Well, is it so much a construction as it is an imposition? I mean, they didn't go out and order a handsome drowned man. No, that's true. <laughs> he just kind of washed up. <laughs> Although off. you could imagine that scene being part of this story. <laughs> it's a, it's, but, so it's a creation, but it's not a creation ex nihilo. They're, right. It's, it's they ha- it's it's a portent that they have to account for. And it's the fact that they accept it as a portent that it, that leads to this hermeneutical effort. He must mean something. What, what and so they dig down to get that. What they're kind of doing is creating a big man. You know, the big the big man is a a figure in American folktale. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's the it's the man who kind of represents the region, right? And, and uh, and does all the things the region is good at. So the most famous is from my area, Paul Bunyan, right? He cuts uh-huh. he cuts down all the trees. He creates the uh, he he creates the Mississippi River and the 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 ten thousand lakes of Minnesota. Whatever he's a lumberjack, right? He represents that region. But you also have Pecos Bill who rides the tornado. Mm-hmm. You have John Henry, my favorite, who, who, uh, and I'm it? trying real hard not to start singing. Who's the <laughs> who drives the railroad spikes and 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 beats the steam engine just in time to die, right? Uh, you know, uh, there's an obvious moral there. You have uh, the the fellow who rode the uh, Captain Storm along, the guy who the guy who 
fought with the whale. He's a he's a he's a New England big man. So so most of these big men are based out of nothing. Essentially, they're just stories, right? It's just something mm-hmm. people made up. Esteban is a big man who doesn't exist, right? They impute all this stuff to him, but at the same time, they don't make him up as a story. They make him up as a body. I think David's really onto something with the aggressive corporeality of these stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he's not, there, there's something there. He's not just a fantasy. And I think that's, that's the, the most interesting, well, to me, the most interesting thing about these two stories is that, it's not a fleeting glimpse of what might have been an angel that sends a community into argument. Right, right. It's this undeniable thing in the chicken coop that you can poke and that yells back at you when you do. And that sticks around for years. Yeah. But still a matter of faith in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, right. But, I mean, contrast that, for instance, to the scene in The Scarlet Letter where there's a uh, you know, a a vision of the letter A in the sky, but then it's not there to look at when everyone's trying to figure out what it meant. Well, and everybody yeah. interprets it completely different. Well, I mean, that still happens in these stories, but <laughs> uh, I mean, more so in the very old man than in the handsomest drowned man. But uh, where they all seem to have a hive mind. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's it's very it's very much a community effort in 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 the drowned man, and you know where you initially have the men being kind of skeptical, but as soon as they see the body, what the women have concluded seems natural, and even the neighboring villages, they're like, yeah, this is you, you people are crazy out here on your <laughs> <laughs> on your headland or whatever this is called, and then they come and they see the body, and they're like, oh yes, it we is must all send you true. flowers. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, there, there's there's something about the the inescapable objective reality of the drowned man and the winged old man that makes their interpretation even more of a problem or a challenge to the communities that they drop up and that that they pop into. Mm-hmm. You know. They are, they have to make up something because the thing is there. <laughs> right, right. Well, Michael Garcia Marquez is usually one of the first names that comes up when people talk about magical realism in contemporary fiction. I want you to talk about that designation, but I want to cast it as a fight to pick because, well, it's me. Uh, in a <laughs> theology and literature cl- class I took in grad school, uh, the professor argued that only a reader with an unhealthy, narrow view of what counts as the real, would insist that Marquez and other such fiction writers are doing something distinct called magical realism as opposed to just plain old realism. Uh, Do you reckon that's a fair criticism of North American literary critics and their reception of Gabriel Marquez, or would you make a case to retain that term? I think the term is okay, magical realism. I think it's been almost ridiculously narrowly applied. Um, So if what we take to be magical realism is elements of the supernatural happening in an otherwise mundane story, which is what I, what I take what I take magical realism to be, well, Hawthorne has magical realist stories, mm-hmm. right, right? I mean, 
John, when I teach American Lit, sometimes I do John Cheever's The Swimmer, which is a magical realist story. He, it's not considered magical realism because of the color of Cheever's skin, essentially, because you can't really be a magical realist if you're not from South America, which, uh, <laughs> right? I mean, and I, I just, I just think that 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 is the silliness of the designation. I think it's a helpful designation, and, and I, I think I think your professor, I, I don't, I don't understand wh- whose definition of of real includes. Uh, Men with enormous wings, or whose definition of realism can can uh, includes men with enormous wings, because that is not something that happens uh, really ever, right? <laughs> I mean, the, the, thing, the things he's describing are clearly extraordinary, marvelous things, and and so I don't I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with the fact that that it becomes kind of a patronizing way to talk about South American literature. Isn't it cute? They believe in. You know, they, they believe in, in these fantastic things. Whereas, you know, like I said, Hawthorne does this. Cheever does this. Lots of people do this. Um, so let's hold on to the magical realism designation, but let's not let's not conclude that either all Latin American literature is magical realist. Because sometimes you even hear uh, Borges called a magical realist, which is ridiculous. Uh, mm-hmm. He's not a magical realist in any sense except that he is from South America. And let's let's so let's not assume that everybody from South America is a magical realist, and let's not assume that to be a magical realist you have to be from South America. Let's expand it as a category that that kind of deals with realism infused with surrealism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I you know I noticed you know these sorts of things happening in Toni Morrison novels, and I mean all kinds of literature that isn't South American. So I'll agree with that. I I think that's a, that's not a bad way to treat it. Or even Kafka, right? I mean, the Metamorphosis is a, is a work of magical realism. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't get called that, partially because, to be fair, the term did not exist when Kafka was writing. It's a it's a term that comes about in the sixties. Mm-hmm. And I've heard it's a bad translation of the actual um, Spanish phrase. Oh yeah, 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 and I and I have read about that, but it's been a few years. I mean, I. Can you remember offhand, Michael, what the Spanish phrase is? Yeah, I, I, I think it's the rather straightforward-sounding realismo magico, magico. Uh, sorry, my <laughs> Spanish is worse than my French. I never claimed <laughs> to be able to speak Spanish, um, which sounds, you know, magical realism sounds like a good enough translation, except magico can also be translated wonderful. Mm-hmm. Which is, which I mean, you know, there, there's some, there's a good amount of overlap between that wonderful realism and magical realism, but at the same time, it seems a little less patronizing. But that may just be because of the way the the term magical realism has been used and abused over the years. I'm That's sure, I'm sure, if we'd originally translated it wonderful realism, we'd be complaining about that and saying, well, why, why didn't we translate it magical realism? Right, right. The fact is, the term the term has a history of use, and and the history of use has not always been great. Yeah, people would be saying, "Oh, you think it's just wonderful that those South Americans can actually write sentences?" <laughs> can they ever? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, some of the, and like I said, I mean, uh, listeners, I mean, go read these two stories. They're very brief, and I mean, if you're like me, I mean, there are lines that are just unbelievably funny. Yeah, uh, no, it's very funny. So, well, David, as we kind of head for the door here, I want to make our final discussion uh, a sort of wine and cheese conversation. So having revisited Garcia Marquez, 
with what narrative verse philosophical or other text would you pair these two stories uh, and what realities emerge from each when they're in conversation? And when you've proposed your pairing, pass it along to Chef Farmer, who will do likewise. Oof. I must say that in this episode, I have felt, uh, I, I feel more out of my depth than normal. Um, but one of the, one of the features of these stories that I keep coming back to, uh, is this notion of an, an inescapably corporeal, physical, tangibly there invasion of a reality from outside of even just the frame of reference of, uh, of the people in the stories. And I know, and I know that you said that, uh, you know, Gabo, uh, Gabo was an atheist, but if I had to put, put these stories in some kind of category, uh, or in conversation with some kind of category where I think it'd be fruitful. Um, I think it'd be kind of, I think it'd be good to, to read these stories and then come back just, just to the idea of, Incarnation and bodily resurrection in Christian theology. Mm. Um, the the aggressive thereness of the incarnate God, um, who whose whose mere presence uh, resulted in thousands of years of attempts to figure out what on earth did it mean, did it mean. <laughs> Um, you know, the, you know, na naturally there are attempts to, you know, there are attempts to re-explain or, uh, ex explain away, um, the, uh, the accounts, uh, of the gospels, the accounts preserved in, um, in the memory of the church that bear witness to it, um, as we just invented this figment, but in some sense, I, th I, I, I've, I really do believe that this isn't just magical. A wonder happened. Um, this person was here, and unlike the uh, unlike the angel that doesn't speak Latin, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the word spoke. Um, but and unlike the handsome drowned man, um, he didn't stay a corpse. But still, there's. Uh, I don't know that, that 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 to me. I I I I I immediately go to theolo theological categories when I read these stories, and I feel mm -hmm. like he's tempting me to do so. Hey, we're kind <laughs> of back at El Cogador, huh? The uh, yeah. the the defecating figurine in the Spanish nativity scene. Little poop boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I. Yep. Pretty much. You know the, the 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 problem or the the qua the quandary of of corporeality. You know, he's just there. What do you do with it? You guys, I'm going to give you three pairings, and I'll go quickly through them so it doesn't seem like I'm cheating so much. <laughs> First, I think it's very instructive to read 
Garcia Marquez next to Borges. Um, just to show you the range of literature you get just in one generation over two countries in South America. It'll, it'll stop you from thinking that everybody, everybody in South America is writing like Garcia Marquez. I know a lot of people kind of resent that because not everybody writes about the jungle, you know, not everybody writes about these villages and, and Borges is as cosmopolitan and urbane a writer as you get as philosophical a fiction writer as you get. And yet, um, you know, he's from the same continent anyway as Garcia Marquez. So read read them next to each other, and you won't make the mistake of assuming that either one of them represents South America in some way, which is a silly thing to expect anyway. I'll also suggest <laughs> you read these two stories up against one of Garcia Marquez's stories that is not magical realism, uh, Balthasar's Marvelous Afternoon, mm-hmm. which is about a guy who is really good at making – bird cages and i'll leave it at that uh, I'll, I'll let you discover the uh, the strangeness of that story for yourself but it's not a supernatural strangeness it's a completely natural strangeness and then third i want to i want to um point towards somebody who nathan mentioned earlier which is tony morrison um to, to read her book beloved as a, as a kind of air of what garcia marquez is doing here and as an heir of Faulkner at the same time, I think I think she she is she's very much standing in that tradition of of the supernatural entering the mundane in such a way that we're not surprised exactly. You know, we we the people in that book act as though this is something that happens. It may not happen every day, but it's something that happens. And and, and the attitude toward the supernatural in that book is very similar to that in these two stories and very different at the same time. And now I'm writing a freshman comp paper. I understand. (laughs) So I will just, I'll just pass it on to Nathan. Oh, that's great. That's great. (laughs) um, I'm also going to make a couple suggestions. Uh, The first, just to highlight what makes Garcia Marquez so funny. uh, And that would be to read Garcia Marquez's magical realism next to something like Apuleius's Metamorphoses, or as Augustine called it, the Golden Ass. Uh, just just can't because, resist saying that, can you, Nathan? Nope. Uh, because in Apuleius's narrative, you have events that, to a second-century Roman reader, uh, would be completely fantastic. These would be stories from beyond the city walls, to be sure. Uh, these would not be something that you know they would just take as everyday occurrences. And yet, the way that Apuleius tells the story, uh, they are part of a system. They are part of a universe. Uh, they are connected to other parts of reality. Uh, you read that, and then you turn back to Garcia Marquez, and you see just how funny it is and why it's so funny. And it's precisely because the weirdness, the odd event, doesn't connect neatly to the mundane reality around it. Uh, and in fact, I mean, the, the contest of interpretation is precisely as hilarious as it is because the best theological question that the priest can think to, to ask is, why doesn't it speak Latin? Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that, that's what makes it, I mean, so funny. Now, on the other end, uh, I think that a writer that's doing, you know, some very similar things is uh, Kurt Vonnegut, who in his novel Slaughterhouse-Five is also doing, I mean, uh, whatever the science fiction 
analog of magical realism is. That's what he's doing there. Uh, you know, I mean, at the very outset of the novel, he says, you know, I'm going to tell you a story about someone who got unstuck in time. Uh, what? <laughs> uh, and, you know. So it ends up being a non-chronological, chronological novel. Yes, yes, uh, including some conversations that are narrated as part of the novel about the making of the novel and, you know, just all kinds of crazy things like that. So, uh, again, I mean, you know, what he is doing is, uh, like Toni Morrison, and, and now I'm going frosh comp mode here, uh, but with a far greater focus on, I would say, the storytelling art rather than on sort of the limits of human cognition is also doing some things that you could reasonably call magical. Uh, so those would be the two uh, wine and cheese pairings that I would suggest. Uh, I think, you know, you guys have, have done good work proposing some others as well. And I believe that's where we're going to wrap things up here. So I want to go ahead and thank uh, Michael Farmer and David Grubbs for a good conversation today. Listeners, next week's episode will be our spring semester finale. And David, what are going to be blah, blah, what are we going to be doing in that finale? Uh, I figure I would uh, uh, take up the uh, the the gauntlet that uh, was it was it Isabella? Mm-hmm. Isabel. 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 Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That 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 Isabel uh, reminded us that uh, actually I don't I don't think I threw it down. You threw that one down, right, Michael? Uh, yes, I did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that one up. Uh, podcast recommendations but even beyond that just uh new media recommendations not magazines not journals not movies not books but that other stuff on the thing that we call the interwebs we'll we'll talk on that listeners you may recognize that as a classic we don't need to prepare anything for this week end of the semester (laughs) podcast episode Right, and Michael just violated, you know, all of the uh, principles of sprezzatura by announcing that we haven't prepared. I am. <laughs> I, I don't believe in sprezzatura, Nathan. That's you. Oh, believe in it? Heck, I've seen it done. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's not that wonderful. <laughs> in the meantime, uh, listeners, uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask you again, although I've asked you before, to go ahead and join our Facebook page, largely because there's going to be some upcoming announcements about the beginning of. Book of Nature, about the beginnings of the Sectarian Review. These are two new podcasts that are going to be coming your way in the fall. We're excited about them. We want you to be excited about them, too. We want you to go over to iTunes, uh, check out Christian Humanist Profiles and the Christian Feminist Podcast and the Christian Humanist Podcast. If you've not left a review, please do so. If you've not dropped some stars on them, please do so. If you want to leave us five stars and then ironically write awful things about us, that's great, too, because it brings more listeners our way. <laughs> you can also uh, email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can find us, of course, at Facebook. You can find us at uh, christianhumanist.org. Uh, in the meantime, as we wait for that season-ending episode, I want to leave you in behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubbs with those lovely words of Luther let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. Stronger.